whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands, and I, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you, and I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live in you, you will also live. On that day you will realise that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by the Father, and I too will love them and will show myself to them. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. Well, it's good to be with you. Uh, if you're new and visiting with us, my name's Pete. I'm the pastor of Inner West Church, and uh, we're family together, which is great. It's great to be able to gather, um, uh, no matter what's been happening in our weeks, to come together on this uh, Sunday morning, not because this is church or all that church is about. No, it's far more than that. It's a, a life that we live together as God's people, but it's good to gather corporately all together and be reminded of who God is and what He's done for us, that the gospel is good news and gracious news and news that we need to hear all the time and apply to all of our life all the time so it's just great and it's great to be able to pray great to be able to sing um, and I hope you're encouraged uh, no matter what you're going through today whether you're having a just a wonderful week or a really hard one um, I hope it's encouraging to be here uh, this morning we're going to be continuing in our series on the gospel of John uh, walking working our way through chapters 13 to 17 we're now in chapter 14 uh, we're going to be hearing some new stuff about what it means to obey Jesus, what it means to love Jesus, and what it need, means uh, to be helped to do those two things. Uh, so before we jump in, let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is life to us. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you promise that those who meditate deeply on it will know what life is and will know what hope is and will know uh, what truth is because in it Jesus is revealed, the way, the truth, and the life. So I pray, Lord, that as we uh, open your word to this passage from John's gospel, that you will show us Jesus. Lord, Father, Holy Spirit, show us Jesus this morning, that we may delight in him, love him, and treasure him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, something that I think everyone, uh, whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, probably understands or, or suspects about being a Christian is that it requires a whole life change, right? It's, it's something that uh, changes everything. It changes how you live, how you behave, what you do. It requires things like self-sacrifice. It requires self-giving. Uh, it, it requires that you uh, begin to do things that perhaps you don't really want to do. It requires that you perhaps give up some things that you actually really want to do. <laughs> In fact, uh, this is probably the reason, I think, why lots of people would say, I don't really want to have anything to do with Christianity. Uh, not potentially because it's impossible to believe, but because it's simply just so hard. It's hard. It requires a lot. In fact, it requires everything. 
Uh, and this is fair enough. This is all very, very true. Being a Christian requires a whole life change. It brings with it like a new code of conduct, a, a new morality, new ways of being a worker, new ways of being a parent, a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a friend. Uh, it requires uh, restrictions on sexuality. It demands our time and our resources. And yet despite all these demands, it also is something that at least most of us here are committed to, right? We, we call ourselves Christians. We, we strive after being the sort of person that we think God wants us to be. Even when it goes against our own natural inclinations. And once we have the desire to obey... Right? We, we want to obey, but the question then is, well, how do we keep on obeying? Why would, how do we keep on aligning ourselves to the Bible? How do we keep on uh, self-reflecting and seeing the ways that we fall short and, and doing something about them? How do we begin to obey? How do we continue to obey as Christians? And why do we do it? What is the thing that drives us? What is the motivation behind it all? These are all really good questions and questions that we really need to answer. Fortunately, John gives us some r- profound responses to these things. So as we go for our passage today, we're going to learn about this. We're going to learn about obedience. We're going to learn three things. We're going to learn about the life of obedience. We're going to learn about the motivation for obedience. And we're going to learn about the power for obedience. Okay, the life of obedience, the motivation for obedience, and the power for obedience. First of all, let's look at the life of obedience. Uh, in John 14, uh, if, you're in your, if you've got Bibles, um, feel free to turn to chapter 14. We're going to verse 12. Uh, there's a bunch of them over there on the, on the table if you don't have one. Um, in John chapter 14, uh, Jesus asks two things of those who follow him, those who call themselves Christians. First of all, he says, if you believe in me, you will continue on my mission. Okay, if you believe in me, you will continue my mission. Uh, let's look at verse 12. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the, thing, do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Okay, so we who follow Jesus are to continue the ministry of Jesus. This is what it means when he says that you will continue to do the works that I have been doing. Uh, We will continue to engage with the religious and the irreligious. We'll continue to compassionately serve the poor and the marginalized. We'll continue to pray for God to work miraculously in in healing in other ways. And not only that, Jesus says the disciples, and we here, will will do even greater works than these. Now we've got to stop here, right? Because greater works than these, how, how is that possible? Hang on, Jesus. Like, how, how can we do greater things than what, what you did? How can, we, what, how can you top feeding the 5,000? Like, that's pretty hard, right? How do you top raising Lazarus from the dead? Are we, how, how are we supposed to top that? It's a little bit like you know, having an over, older sibling who maybe gets you know, 99.95 on their VCEs, and then you come up into grade 12 and have your parents go, we're very confident you're going to do better. Like, thanks very much, mum and dad. Like, 
just put a set me up to fail, why don't you? How are we supposed to do greater works than Jesus? And yes, this is what he says. The clue is, I think, at the end of verse 12. The disciples will do greater works because Jesus is going to the Father. Jesus is going to the Father. Jesus is, is going to descend into death, into the grave, and then rise again to new life and then ascend back to heaven to the right hand of God. And Jesus is saying that when this happens, when I descend and then when I ascend up to heaven, this is going to be the start of a new age. This is going to be the start of a new era. The era, the age of salvation. What's going to be new? What's going to be new about this? Well, what's going to be new is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is going to spread across the world. And thousands and thousands and millions of millions of people will come to believe in Jesus and confess that he is Lord. Family, this is the greater works that Jesus is talking about. He's saying, yes, you'll, you will feed the poor. Yes, you will engage the religious and the irreligious. Yes, you will go out and, and pray for supernatural things to happen. But above all that, you will go out on mission. And through your witness about me, you will see people turn from sin and come into life. And that is the greatest work. Those are the greater works that we're going to do. And this is only possible because Jesus has ascended, because he's king ruling over all things. He is the Lord of the harvest who now sends his workers out to bring in the harvest. He uses us. It is, it is something that we participate in, yet it is his work. We are his mouth, his hands, and his feet. Now, this kind of makes uh, sense of verse 13 as well, when Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do for you. A lot of people have misinterpreted that to think, well, if I ask for a Porsche, he's going to give me a Porsche. Sorry, Piero. Uh, it's not the case. <laughs> ask Piero about that later. Uh, <laughs> it's not the case. It's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is that uh, the sorts of prayers disciples of Jesus will pray will be aligned to the will of God. And what is the will of God for is Jesus will be made much of and that Jesus will spread throughout the world and that many will believe and repent. So we're not to pray for frivolous things, but for eternal things. And that's why we pray in the name of Jesus. Uh, some people think this is kind of like a magic word that you attack on the end of a prayer to make sure it works. No, 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 no. To pray in the name of Jesus means to, to pray that your prayer will be aligned to who he is. That, it, that it, your prayer will be aligned with all that his name stands for. It's also a recognition that the only way we can pray to the Father is through the Son. So we pray to, to God through the name of Jesus. And so, powered by prayer, right, the disciples will continue Jesus' mission to the lost. This is the first thing that Jesus asks of his disciples. Uh, second, he says, uh, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So his first point was that his disciples would continue his works. His second point now is that they would obey his words. We have to give up control of our lives. We can't continue living according to our own moral compass, according to just whatever we want to do. We have to do 
what is good to God. We have to behave in a way which pleases Him. We have to obey the things that Jesus commands us to do. And Jesus spent most of His teaching ministry unpacking the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with, with, love, love the Lord your God with everything that you have and love others like you love yourself. Jesus says those are the two great commandments and everything, all his commands that he asks of us kind of fit under those two categories. So our job is to search the scriptures and see how we can align our lives with these things that Jesus asks of us to do. So being a disciple of Jesus is someone who continues his mission and keeps his commands. Continues his mission and keeps his commands. And anyone who's been a Christian for more than like 60 seconds knows one thing for sure. This is flipping hard, right? Everyone agree with that? No, the few people like, yeah, it's awesome. So I'm just nailing this thing. Uh, for the rest of us, it's really hard, right? It's really hard. Why? Because the inclination of our hearts is away from God. We want to do things our way. We don't want to go on mission for Him. We, we, d we don't want to share the good news. That's uncomfortable, and annoying, inconvenient. And we don't want to obey Jesus' commands because there's lots of things that I want to do which don't really line up with that. So it's hard work, right? Now, by God's grace, we see lots of uh, uh, times when we do do the things that God wants us to do. And often we fail. We persevere. We want to be faithful disciples in life and mission. Uh, and so that means that because this is true, there must be something that motivates us. We must have a motivation that, that makes us want to obey God. What that motivation is, is absolutely vital to know. Because there are three motivations that can power us, that can drive us to obey Jesus, to obey His commands and go on mission for Him. Two of those motivations lead to death will drag us down into the dust. And the third one will lead to life, will give us joy and peace. So let's look at these motivations. Uh, my second point. So there are two, uh, let's look at the first two common ones, right? There's the first two uh, common motivators behind people. Actually, people just choosing to do anything difficult in their life, anything at all. There's two common motivators. And both of these are illustrated in one of my favorite movies of all time and should be yours as well, The Karate Kid. Genuinely awesome. Uh, if you don't know the story, then shame on you, but I'll tell you anyway. Uh, it's the story of young Daniel, a uh, young kid who moves uh, to California with his mum. And, uh, and, uh, and as he moves into this new neighbourhood, he meets, classically, some bullies. And unfortunately, these are also karate-trained bullies, the worst type of bully. Uh, and they make life hell for young Daniel. It's, it's, it makes it really terrible. Uh, but after a number, number of run-ins with these bullies, he meets who? Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi. Uh, old Japanese guy who t is the building's maintenance man. Uh, and Mr. Miyagi turns out, quite fortunately, to also be a karate master. It's amazing how these things work out. Uh, and he takes a liking to Daniel um, and in fact saves Daniel from a bit of a beatdown and then offers to teach Daniel the ways of karate. And Daniel's stoked. He's like, this is awesome. 
no worries, this is fantastic. And he signs up uh, and he begin, and so begins the classic training montage. I can't remember if the best, the best is what, what's around is in over this particular one, but imagine that in your head. You know. uh, what, what's the classic moves? The wax on, wax off. What's the other ones? Paint the fence. Third one, always forget, stand the floor. And he does this over and over, painting this, uh, this guy's fence, waxing this guy's car, sanding this guy's floor, and he does and does and does it, and he starts to grumble and complain and whinge. But of course, turns out he's learning awesome karate moves. And he didn't even know it. And so when Mr. Miyagi like chucks a punch, he's like, How wax, uh, wax on, wax off, and so on and so forth. And so he trains, so he gets really good. What is driving Daniel in this story? To, to, to work until he aches to learn karate. What's driving him? Well, there's two things. The first thing is fear. It's a classic one. Fear is a great motivator. There's these big bad bullies who don't like me very much and they're going to beat me up. This fear of them is driving me to train so I can defend myself. In fact, he keeps going. Even when his arms are aching, he keeps going. Why? Fear. But there's another, potentially even more powerful motivator. Pride. Why? Because there's a girl involved. Elizabeth Shue. Elizabeth Shue is there. She's dating the, uh, the head of the bullies. And every time he gets a, a, a beat down from them, you know, he likes her and he knows that his pride takes a, takes a hit, right? So somewhere in there is going, well, if I can beat them, then you know, she'll think I'm something special. And then my pride will be restored and maybe I'll get the girl. So fear and pride. All you need to become a karate master, fear and pride, right? That might be helpful for you if you go down and train. Uh, fear and pride are also really common motivators for Christians. Why is that? Well, fear says... I must obey or else I'll pay. Happens all the time, right? If I, if I don't obey, then I'll slip up and I'll fall out of God's grace. If I don't obey, God will be angry with me. If I don't obey, I might not make it to heaven. If I don't obey, God will punish me. Have you ever thought any of these? Maybe even just for a moment or somewhere deep down. This is fear. And fear works. You will obey. Fear is a powerful motivator. But the problem is that fear will have a devastating consequence for your life. Because at best, a life motivated by fear will just lead to uh, your faith being an obligation. It'll be, well, Jesus has done all this stuff for me, so I, I better measure up. Otherwise, things are going to go badly. So that's at best. At worst, you'll, you'll develop this paralyzing anxiety. Anxiety that comes from never feeling good enough, constantly comparing to others who seem to be doing better than you. You'll be paralyzed by anxiety. A life motivated by fear may just lead you to give up. Or it might even just suck all the joy out of your life so you become bitter and insular. It's a life motivated by fear. Or what about pride? Well, pride is even more dangerous. Why? Because pride is, is a bit more subtle. It can... Pride masquerades very easily as godliness. Pride says, I must obey to get the grade. Pride says, I must obey to keep my grade. Pride makes obedience into a badge of honor. 
You know, we might think that our track record, you know, that's going to be impressive to God. He's going to be pleased with me when he sees just how good I am, how much I obey. And even, and perhaps even better, when other people see me, like, uh, obey so well, man, they'll applaud. They'll think, wow, Pete, wow, he's an awesome guy. Man, he's so godly. And pride, so pride puffs up. It, it, it puffs you up, makes you self-important. And as you do, what happens is you start to dismiss people. You dismiss people who you don't think are as good as you. You can write them off. And at the same time, you feel, uh, be filled with jealousy for the people you think are above you who are doing better. So you dismiss those below and you, you're filled with envy and jealousy for those above. And you exhaust yourself because you're trying to maintain this facade of morality and righteousness. But it has no foundation, so it can easily crumble. Fear and pride, that both things that are alive and well in our church. In this church, any church. I sense them in my own heart all the time when I'm suddenly obeying out of fear or obeying out of pride. Perhaps you do as well. So they're terrible, terrible options. The third, third way is better. The one Jesus gives us, actually. Uh, there's this great point in The Karate Kid where uh, Daniel's been training for a while and then uh, one day he comes over to Mr. Miyagi's house and uh, Mr. Miyagi is uh, drunk. And he comes in, he's drunk, and he's in his army uniform. And Daniel's like, Come, what's going on? I've never seen you like this. He's really vulnerable and upset and... Uh, Daniel soon finds out that actually Mr. Miyagi is, is a bit more than meets the, meets the eye. He has this history. At one stage, uh, he, during World War II, his wife and, and, and child died in a, uh, in a detention camp. Then you find that actually he's also got a Congressional Medal of Honor. He's a war hero. And this is the anniversary of, uh, of his wife and child's death this beautiful moment of vulnerability, of new understanding between Daniel and Mr. Miyagi. And after this night, it's really interesting, the very next scene, you see that Daniel's training, uh, it gets, it's different. It's got a different focus. He's got this zeal that he didn't have before. And actually, he starts training by himself. You see this great uh, picture of him up on the beach. Mr. Miyagi's not even around. He's starting to train outside of his lesson time. Gone are the jokes. Gone are the, the little sly comments and the complaints. Why is that? Well, I think for Daniel, Mr. Miyagi is, is transformed. He's no longer just a teacher. He's become like a father. He's no, one, no longer just someone to respect for his skill, but someone to love for who he is. And that love transforms Daniel's desire to obey. Love for Jesus is to treasure him as something truly precious. Love flows straight from believing the gospel, which proves Jesus to be someone worth treasuring above all. So while fear and pride will drag you into the dust, love is a motivation that can sustain you and bring joy and peace. And by the way, this is what secular people so often miss about Christianity. I remember once talking to an atheist friend uh, who said to me, if, if God only gives me two choices worship me or be sent to hell, then that's not a God that I ever want to believe in. 
But my friend missed the point. He thought there was only two options, worship or be punished. He didn't realize that Christianity at heart is about love. The love of God poured out for us and the love of God, love for God that we are able to respond to Him. And that motivation is a great reason not only to believe in God, but to worship Him and love Him and, and trust Him and live for Him. And the gospel is the source of this because the gospel shows us the ultimate love and the ultimate sacrifice and it creates communities that echo that same love and sacrifice. But here in our passage, uh, Jesus mentions love and obedience twice, you know. It's in verses 15 and 21. He bookends this passage with this same thing. If you love me, keep my commands. And those who keep my commands are those who love me. Why does he do that? Well, he does it because, remember, he's going away and he wants his disciples to be able to love him all into the future. Not just for them, but for generations to come for the next thousands of years, right up until our time now. And so he wants to give something else, not only the motivation to obey, but the power to obey as well. My final point, the power for obedience. A little while ago, I was reading a, a great article. Was, um, uh, the article was spotlighting uh, the oldest people in the world. Oldest people. So these are men and women over the kind of 115, 116 mark. Um, and uh, they're kind of getting some good sound bites, a few quotes from each of them. And this is what Gertrude Weaver, 116, at the time was the second oldest person in the world, became the oldest person in the world. This is what she said. You have to follow God. Don't follow anyone else. Be obedient and follow the laws and don't worry about anything. I have followed him for many, many years and I ain't tired. You kind of have to get the South American kind of black woman voice in your head to get, I think. Uh, and I ain't tired. 116 and she ain't tired, she says. How is that possible? Well, only with a lot of help. Have a look at John, uh, so chapter 14, verse 16. Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Another advocate. Advocate in this context can mean a, a number of different things. Uh, it could mean counselor. Uh, it could mean mediator. It could mean intercessor or comforter or helper. And certainly this, this advocate is, is all these things and more, and we're going to learn a lot more about it in the coming weeks. But in this particular context, I think what Jesus is getting at is that he is going to be a helper, a new helper. Someone who would come alongside the disciples, someone who would help them, encourage them, and strengthen them. And he is another helper. So what does that mean? It must mean one to come first, right? Who's that? Well, that's Jesus. Jesus, in his ministry on earth with the disciples, was their strength, with their strength and encouragement and their help. And now he's saying that as I go, as I die and rise again, go back to the Father, I'm going to send you another one. Another one who will be like me. But the identity of this person is a mystery, in, at least in verse 16. But then in verse 17, he is revealed. Who is this person? Who is this advocate, this helper? He is the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, for he lives with you and will, will be in you. So the advocate helper is what the very spirit of God. 
He would be sent by the Father and the Son to live inside of every person who believes in Jesus. God himself is going to come and dwell in the hearts of the disciples. And Christians, since the very first day, have been powered by this, been powered by a power greater than any other. This is how the church has grown. This is how martyrs have been able to go to their death without losing their faith. This is how Christians have crossed land and water to spread the gospel, the good news about Jesus. They and us here today, if you believe in Jesus, are powered by the Spirit of God living in us. And what is unknown and unseen and weird to the rest of the world outside the church is, is incredibly precious and valuable to us, the Holy Spirit. But how exactly does the Holy Spirit help us to love and obey Jesus? Well, first notice what he is called. He is called the Spirit of what? Truth. The Spirit of truth. The Spirit's job is to remind us of the truth. The truth about what? Well, the truth about Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life. The Spirit's job is to remind us and point us back to Jesus. Uh, Leon Morris, who used to be the, the principal of Ridley College in the 50s, uh, he once described the Holy Spirit as like a spotlight. A spotlight's job is not to uh, shine upon itself. The spotlight's job is to, uh, is to emphasize or make clear or make glorious something else. Most often the main character in a play or a drama. How, well, the Holy Spirit is a spotlight who shines the light on and reveals the glory of the main character of the story of God, Jesus Christ. The, the Spirit helps us to see Jesus in all his glory. Remember the turning point for the karate kid here? When, when he began to truly love Mr. Miyagi is when he saw Mr. Miyagi's deepest vulnerability and greatest victory deepest vulnerability in that his wife and child had died and the grief of that deepest and the greatest victory in that he was a war hero congressional medal of honor the holy spirit lets us see jesus in the same way he reveals to us jesus deepest vulnerability that he died on a shameful cross mocked and scorned by the very people he came to save on the cross he gave up his spirit the Holy Spirit left him just as the Father turned his back on him, the Son. He sacrificed literally all he had for us. The Spirit also lets us see Jesus' greatest victory. As we look on the beauty of him, as we see that after three days in the grave, he rose from the dead. And the same Spirit that rose him from the dead is now comes to live with us who believe in him. So the Son who, who gave up His Spirit, He did it so that we could receive His Spirit. So we open the page of Scripture and the Holy Spirit within us shows us who Jesus is, the beauty of who He is. We witness uh, Him as we gather together, as, as just as this in Kensington, in the West, and the Spirit shows that we are His body, His family, His bride. The Spirit cries from within our hearts and says, Look, look and see Jesus. Look and see the truth. But the Spirit does not only show us Jesus, He also gives us Jesus. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also 
will live. With Jesus leaving, surely the disciples would feel abandoned. But he says, no, I'm coming to you. What does that mean? Well, maybe it's a reference to his resurrection when he rises and appears to the disciples and then hundreds of others. Perhaps it refers to the last day when Jesus comes again in bodily form to reign as king forever and ever. But I think in the context, we've got to imagine that Jesus is saying that he is going to come in the, with the Spirit. At Pentecost, when he comes down on the, on the disciples, this is going to be uh, his coming. How is this possible? Well, Romans 8 helps us a bit. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 9, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. In other words, to belong to Christ, you must have the Spirit of Christ. So the Holy Spirit does not simply tell us about Jesus, the Spirit connects us to Jesus. He embodies the relationship we have with Jesus. And when the Spirit uh, came down to the disciples, the resurrection life of Jesus flowed into them, restoring them, rejuvenating them, regenerating them. And as He did so, He ignited in in our hearts a relationship of such loving intimacy that would last, that would last until the day that Jesus returns Himself to be with us bodily. We are eternally precious to Him, and so through the Spirit, Jesus has become eternally precious to us. That's why John uses these two terms. If you love me, keep my commands. If you keep my commands, you love me. Because the Spirit is a dynamic power that binds love and obedience together. George Mueller said 150 years ago, I desire many things concerning myself, but I desire nothing so much as to have a heart filled with love to the Lord. I long for a warm, personal attachment to Him. With the Spirit of God, George Mueller's longing, and our longing as well, is made possible. Because the Spirit alone creates in us this desire to love Jesus. A deep longing to experience His love. And then the, Jesus answers, uh, the Spirit answers our prayers to be filled with that love. He shows us Jesus and He binds Him to us. He shows us that we are eternally loved and accepted. And as He does so, He casts out fear. We get freed from the anxiety, the performance, that anxiety that, that, that forces us to obey because we're afraid of what might happen. He helps us to experience this great gift of forgiveness and restoration. And the Spirit helps to cast out pride because His light reveals to, to us that we are sinners, that we don't deserve anything that we get. We, can't work, we cannot, could not work enough to gain it. We're saved only by grace. And so grace casts out pride and the Spirit gives us grace. And so we can't puff ourselves up. We can't dismiss those who we think we are below us because we know that we're no better. But neither could we be envious of what uh, the people have who who we think are above us because we know that anything that we have is only by God and from God. And so the Spirit grows in us a deep humility and a knowledge of our own weakness. And then in the void left by fear and pride, the Spirit floods us with love. 
abounding and ever-increasing love. And this is what can motivate us to obey Jesus fully in all of life, to trust Him as Savior, to submit to Him as our great King, to worship Him as Almighty God. Love for Jesus is what will see our lives transformed. This is what will grow us into maturity. This is what will help us to obey all that Jesus commanded us to do. And this is what will send us out into the world to continue Jesus' mission of salvation for the world. The Holy Spirit is such a great treasure because within us, alive in us, is how we can do all these things. Not grow tired. Even if we should live to 116, finish our lives and say, I ain't tired, but I'm ready. (laughs) Isn't that great? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your generosity to us. You sent Jesus to die for us and he sent the Holy Spirit to fill us. Lord, help us not to quench the Spirit, but to allow the Spirit to work in us, to fill us with love for Jesus, to help us to obey all your commands and to send us out into the world to be on mission, to tell others about this great and precious gift that we have. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.